Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, everyone. Great to be back. And Haley Knoth. Hello, hello. I want to kick us off today, guys, with a bit of an update to share. You guys probably remember a few episodes ago, it was actually 313 if I'm getting exacting here, we talked about lawsuits targeting law firm fellowships that are dedicated to diversity. And uh, those suits essentially allege that those programs amount to unlawful racial discrimination. So the update I wanted to give is that Morrison Forrester, which is one of the firms that was sued, has actually changed the eligibility criteria for candidates for their diversity fellowship. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. In that segment, if you guys remember, we kind of talked about like what uh, the ABA was suggesting that firms might want to consider. They didn't want them to abandon these kind of programs but that there might be some middle ground. It seems like MoFo has taken that lesson to heart and they're giving it a go. The program they had previously offered to law students was for students who are part of groups that are historically underrepresented in the legal profession. So students of color, those who identify as LGBTQ, and students with disabilities. But now the fellowship criteria has been changed to seek students with a demonstrated commitment to promoting diversity, And it specifically seeks out those with, and this is a quote, the ability to bring a diverse perspective to the firm as a result of your adaptability, cultural fluency, resilience, and life experiences. Ah, the old diversity of thought canard there. Yeah, I think this is going to be interesting to follow. This is why I want to kind of give this update that this is an emerging area to try to figure out where the lines are about what will stay viable for these types of programs. So, This is one of the first ones to change, and we'll see how this plays out. The suit is not gone, so I'm sure there'll be discussion around it. So we'll we'll see what happens next with this. Yeah, I was curious to know if, and it's 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 too soon to know. I'm sure there. I don't think there have been any filings about whether just scaling back language like this is enough to fend off litigation. I don't suppose we know that yet, but we'll stay on top of that story. Also, I am honor bound whenever Morrison and Forrester comes up. I'm positive we've mentioned this on the show before. Amber, you already mentioned it. They do go by MoFo, and that's not us being cute. That is their <laughs> that's right. the preferred firm, itself. firm house style. Every uh, time I see that in a headline, I'm like, LOL. You, n- you never forget it, guys. It's probably really good branding. It bears repeating only because I don't want people to think we have gotten cute. They say <laughs> that. Anyway, uh, thanks for that update, Amber. Very, uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah, I am all over the top of this show today, guys. I also want to give a little heads up to the listeners about what's coming up as our main interview. We have Jack Carp on. He's one of our favorite recurring guests. And he and I have a really interesting conversation about a Fifth Circuit ruling around disenfranchised felons in Mississippi who were barred for the rest of their life from voting. The Fifth Circuit says that that's unconstitutional. They should be able to vote. And it's pretty controversial. So Jack and I get into what that means and what could happen in the future in other states and if it might end up at the high court. Always a pleasure to hear from Jack. Very eager to hear that conversation. So stick around for that. But before we get to that, we do have some proper news to get to. I'll kick us off in uh, deep in the heart of Texas, where a federal judge struck down a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau policy that was rolled out last year. And that policy was aimed at combating discrimination in consumer banking practices. The judge basically ruled that the agency took too broad of a reading of its founding statute for that policy to pass muster. And we'll get into the particulars of that 
in just a moment here, but this is also part of what's becoming a pretty troubling pattern for the CFPB. This this particular case handed a win to you know a bunch of powerful banking industry trade groups who have brought all sorts of legal actions against the CFPB, which may soon face basically like an existential threat at the Supreme Court in a case that's kind of related to the one we're going to talk about today. Yeah, to say the CFPB is beleaguered is really an <laughs> understatement. I mean, it just feels like it's always crushing in on that agency. This one is, yet again, banking trade groups saying like, yeah, you can't do that. What's the particulars uh, of this one? I mean, banking groups are always hating on CFPB, but what's specific here? Yeah, so this this lawsuit was led by the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and many other trade groups and they filed suit in Texas to challenge this CFPB policy that they don't like. And the thrust of that policy, again, rolled out last year, is that uh, CFPB is broadening its oversight of unfair practices in the banking industry to include discrimination. And that might sound a little nebulous, but let me try try and explain it here. So the Dodd-Frank law that founded, that established the CFPB, basically empowered that agency to stop unfair, deceptive, and abusive acts and practices. That is the language in the statute. And what that is basically understood to cover is stuff like a bank misleading a customer on an interest rate or deceptive loan terms or things like that, you know, sort of standard issue consumer protection stuff. But the agency wants to broaden its oversight to cover instances like people being denied access to financial products based on their race, religion, or other factors that the agency deems discriminatory. It basically is trying to loop discrimination into this unfair, deceptive, and abusive acts and practices that that they've long been operating under. And the banking industry viewed that as an illegal expansion of the CFPB's authority, and they brought the agency to court over it. So that is the, the, that's sort of the X's and O's of this uh, lawsuit. Well, I want to make an observation that perhaps our theme this week is discrimination because we have we already had an update up top. Yes. <laughs> Amber just had a great interview that also uh, pertained to perhaps discrimination. And now here we are again. So look at us go. Every week we've got a nice little theme. We're in our theme era. <laughs> we, we are. But so the, the suit, it seems that they, they found a, a sympathetic ear here. They did. And they found it in the form of Texas District Judge Jay Campbell Barker, who just took a look at the Dodd-Frank Law's kind of founding textual language and basically said that that law's definition of, quote, unfairness for the purposes of policing the banking industry makes no mention of discrimination and that, in fact, the section on unfairness appears completely separate and exists separately from other areas of the law that explicitly cover discrimination uh, within the banking sector. Now, Campbell was viewing this suit through the prism of the major questions doctrine. We've talked about that in the past. I think most people know what it is, but it's this concept that's become increasingly popular with conservative judges, and it stipulates that agencies need a clear mandate from Congress to make any kind of significant regulatory change. And the judge just didn't see the CFPB clearing that very high hurdle. Here's a quote from the judge's opinion. The Dodd-Frank Act's language authorizing the CFPB to regulate unfair acts or practices 
is not the sort of exceedingly clear language that the major questions doctrine demands before finding a conferral of agency authority to regulate discrimination across the financial services industry. Independently of the CFPB's separately conferred anti-discrimination power in specific areas. And that little bit at the end, which is kind of what I was referring to before, that there are other parts of the law that deal with discrimination, he's talking about laws like uh, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which does have protections against discrimination, but only in the context of when banks are, are lending money to customers. Here, the CFPB is trying to police discrimination in other consumer banking contexts, like being able to open a bank account, for example, or getting access to any number of other financial instruments. So, you know, with that, you know, sort of fairly straightforward reading of the Dodd-Frank law, the judge struck down the policy. Huge blow uh, to the uh, CFPB. Well, as you alluded to early in this segment, the blows potentially keep on coming for CFPB. So I'd like to hear about where this fits into sort of that broader litigation against that agency. Well, if you are the CFPB or a supporter of the CFPB's goals, it's looking a little bleak right now. So this, this ruling on this, discrim- on this anti-discrimination policy is the second time this summer, just a matter of like six weeks, that a major CFPB rule has gotten the axe. Also in Texas, back in July, a different judge slammed the brakes on a rule that laid out reporting requirements for small business lending. And when it comes to this anti-discrimination rule that we're talking about this week, The CFPB could still appeal, and I would definitely point everyone in the direction of John Hill's reporting. He's been on the show many times, and he writes with great clarity on these often muddy issues. And he talked to people who said that the CFPB has often appealed when their authority is questioned. But that, in this case, may prove somewhat fruitless, because in addition to striking down this rule on statutory grounds, the judge also found it unconstitutional. And to do that, he cited to the Fifth Circuit's decision from last year that basically struck down the agency's entire funding structure, said the the entire way that CFPB was set up and funded is unconstitutional. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, that is because the fight over the constitutionality of the CFPB's funding structure is set to go before the Supreme Court this fall. And that case focuses specifically on a rule about payday lending, the approach depending on how sort of narrow or broadly that the justices render their decision, could jeopardize the fate of the agency itself. So the setback over the anti-discrimination policy is just one brick in the wall for what's going on with the CFPB in court right now. Thoughts and prayers with the CFPB. They're, you know, without uh, weighing in on any of the merits here, the agency's going through it. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for that one, though, Alex. That's very interesting. So I want to turn now to a different topic. I shouldn't have promised this discrimination theme because this story does not fit in with that. That's okay. This one fascinates me, Haley. So I want you to get into it anyway. We are going to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is our future overlords, the robots. Mm. And the robots, as we know, are growing more intelligent by the second. But the manner in which some of them are getting smarter is not only alarming everyone, but has pissed off a growing list of prominent writers. That is because, according to the writers, artificial intelligence is using their copyrighted works without permission to learn. And this has spurred a whole bunch of copyright infringement litigation, 
Most recently, within the last week, novelist Michael Chabon filed two proposed class actions against both OpenAI and Meta platforms, claiming that they used copyrighted works in training material for the artificial intelligence they've developed. This is so right up my alley to talk about because I'm confused about what side I personally would weigh in on. If the machines are going to learn, I maybe want them to learn from some of our better writers, but flip side, copyright's there for a reason. Got to protect that intellectual property. So what are we talking about when we say learning? What are they actually doing with this material? According to the writers, the companies use data sets of various sources and content to train the models underlying these tools like ChatGPT and then Meta's AI, which I'm just going to call Llama. I'm not sure if that's actually uh, what the industry folks say, but that's what we're going to say here on ProSe. And so this involves casting a really wide net across the internet and scooping up as much material as possible in a variety of text-based formats that could be, you know, books, research papers, plays, articles, etc., And that's all fine and well, but the writers say the AI ends up using these so-called shadow libraries that host collections of pirated books and papers and all of those things. And that's where this, where the alleged copyright infringement comes in. You know, I know leaping to Terminator comparisons when we're talking about AI is pretty hack uh, already, (laughs) but I am reminded of of in Terminator 2 when Arnold Schwarzenegger explains that his internal uh, processor is a neural net processor, which is a learning computer, and that the more he interacts with human culture, the more he learns. And I'm just really laughing at the idea of him saying that, and then, like, Michael Shabon running up to him with a summons and saying, actually... Uh, <laughs> Not my books. Mr. T-800, uh, that's, that is... I wrote the Yiddish Policeman's Union. Not you. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to need a royalty. No, um, but I do want to get to the merits of these authors' suits, uh, uh, Shabon and and others. What exactly are they alleging? I'm sure it's somewhat more nuanced than the hypothetical I just laid out, but uh, tell us about it. Well, it's kind of, it's along those lines. They say, <laughs> and I should specify here, Shabon was joined by, I think, four other writers in filing his two proposed class actions. So he and the other writers say that they never gave ChatGPT or Llama permission to copy their books. Um, but according to their suits, it's really clear that they have. They they pointed to, you know, if you prompt chat GPT to do so, it can generate a writing in the style of a certain author, or it can accurately summarize a book. It can even, you know, spit out a real deep analysis of a book. And the writers are saying that's clearly because the robots have copied their works and then analyzed them. How will I ever trust my book club members again? How will I know they read the book if it can churn out these these summaries of anything? If I'm in your book club, it's a fair bet that I'm using ChatGPT. (laughs) I'll I'll throw it out I didn't know where you were going with that at all. (laughs) I I don't have a lot of time on my hands, you know? Got to just read the summary (laughs) these days. Got to watch football. Anyway, Shabon actually pointed in his suit to One of his best-known novels, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. He said, if you prompt ChatGPT, it is able to summarize the book. It's able to identify examples of trauma in the book. And it can even write a paragraph that sounds like Shabon wrote it. 
And meanwhile, OpenAI and Meta are raking in the dough while they sell this technology. In his suits, Shaban is alleging a whole bunch of claims, both direct and vicarious copyright infringement, illegal removal of copyright management information, unfair competition, negligence, and unjust enrichment. That does make a lot of sense when you consider the structure of how learning AIs compile information and why that would make certain creative people bristle that way. Um, I also just want to mention here as an aside, we've often kicked around the the notion of a, of a pro se book club before. And uh, this is not, Cavalier and Clay is not a legal uh, novel by any stretch of the imagination. I do just want to say uh, it kicks ass and I love it. So <laughs> Well, I don't know if we can have so a pro se book club because Haley's just said she doesn't have time for this. Well, that's a good I point. Know. Yeah. I yeah, yeah, we, we've, she just put herself <laughs> on blast. If we ever actually did that, no one would then believe that she read the book. <laughs> and that's on you, Haley. We didn't say that at all. You, you I know. That. Why did I do this to myself? All right, okay. But <laughs> to get us ahead. back on track, you did say that these are just the most recent suits. So what else is going on in this landscape of AI sucking lots of things into its learning library? That's right. There's, there are several other suits already out there and probably more to come. Perhaps the most prominent other proposed class action was actually filed by comedian Sarah Silverman. She and two other authors filed suit in July, and they made basically the same allegations against both OpenAI and Meta, that they used their copyrighted works without consent, credit, or compensation. Here is a quote from that suit. Defendants breached their duties by negligently, carelessly, and recklessly collecting, maintaining, and controlling plaintiffs and class members infringed works in engineering, designing, maintaining, and controlling systems which are trained on plaintiffs and class members infringed works without their authorization. So exactly the same thing that Shabon is saying. You are scooping up our works, you're feeding them to the robots, and you do not have our permission. So it's early days for all of this litigation, and we will keep an eye on it as we always try to do. Have have any of the companies, OpenAI, Meta, any of these other companies that are targeted in these suits, has there been any response yet, either in filings or public statements or anything like that? Yeah, OpenAI has actually filed a motion to dismiss Sarah Silverman's suit. And the argument there is that she and the authors falsely conclude that every chat GPT output, from the name of a U.S. president to a plot summary of Homer's The Iliad, is an infringing derivative work of their books. And they're saying that theory is just unworkable. It would mean that every chat GBT output is an infringing derivative work of millions of individual works in its training data, regardless of whether there are actually similarities between what it spits out and the works it used to train. It's, I mean, it really is an interesting question. We haven't obviously had any opportunity to uh, examine this before because our technology simply was not here yet. But where is the line between copyright infringement in this new world where robots are, you know, roaming the internet, just grazing on (laughs) whatever they find out there? Could be a Reddit thread, could be the dictionary, I don't know. I should also note that we have seen at least two other suits over this exact issue. So it really is safe to say this is just the beginning.
Have you heard of Overture? It's an attorney-to-attorney referral platform where you can refer matters that you can't handle in your own practice or go to Overture and sign up to obtain referrals. Why should you check it out? It's easy, it's ethical, and you can cash in on referral fees that you may just be leaving on the table right now. If you're intrigued, head over to overture.law today. Again, that's overture.law for more. Recently, the Fifth Circuit ruled that Mississippi's law to permanently bar felons from voting is unconstitutional. The groundbreaking ruling may lead to changes beyond that circuit, but some argue the ruling conflicts with existing precedent and can throw voting regimes in many states into disarray. Here to explain the impact and what may happen next is our own senior reporter, Jack Karp. Jack, welcome back to Pro Se. Thank you, Amber. Good to see you. I am always so happy you're here with us. You bring the most interesting stories. This is no exception. We have talked about voting rights before on the show. We've had you on for that. But this is really a big deal, this ruling. Um, I want to get into it, but I think maybe for people who haven't been following this issue closely, we should set a little groundwork. What's the typical regime for voting around people who have felonies? Gotcha. Well, I guess the the best answer to that question is that there is no typical regime. Most uh, states, in fact, I think it's 26 states, do bar um, you know convicted felons from the voting booths for after they're released from prison. But who is barred for how long they're barred, how they can um, get their voting rights back varies widely from state to state. It can depend on what crime you committed, when you committed it, whether or not you owe any fines or fees. Um, But there are 11 states in in Mississippi where this case came from is one of those states. There are 11 states that currently bar um, convicted felons from voting for life. So, you know, you could get out of prison and be out of prison for 30 or 40 years and you still can't vote in those states. So those are the most restrictive things we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. Those those 11 are the most restrictive states when it comes to felon disenfranchisement. As usual, Jack, we have you on here to talk about the most simple and straightforward things. <laughs> Not at all confusing. Of course. <laughs> well, let's get into what happened with that Fifth Circuit ruling. You said a moment ago, this is about a Mississippi disenfranchisement of felons. So what did that case entail and what did the court hold here? So Mississippi's constitution actually bars felons who are convicted of committing certain crimes from ever voting again, you know, after release. And so a group of former inmates in Mississippi challenged that that law and it went up to the Fifth Circuit and they challenged it on several grounds. But one of the more unique grounds they challenged it on was that the, their disenfran- their lifetime disenfranchisement violates the Eighth Amendment's bar on cruel and unusual punishment. Um, and that is the grounds on which the Fifth Circuit ruled. And the Fifth Circuit actually agreed with that. And they, the Fifth Circuit panel said that, yes, barring somebody for vote- from voting for life is cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. Um, and this was unique and, you know, one of the experts I spoke to has called it remarkable for several reasons. Yeah, I want to get into those reasons because I think the first one that occurs to me, and you addressed this in your reporting, is, is a ban on voting even considered punishment? Right. Um, So federal courts have largely upheld um, felon voting bans, um, including the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of the, the reasons they have upheld those bans is because the federal courts have pretty much across the board found that disenfranchisement does not constitute a criminal punishment, that it is essentially 
a civil exercise of the government's power to regulate the franchise, that it, that it is separate and apart from a criminal sentence. And so because of that, because it, it isn't considered punishment, it can't violate the bar on cruel and unusual punishment. And so one of the things that's remarkable and surprising about this Fifth Circuit ruling is, you know, as far as I can tell, at least, it's the first time a federal appellate court has ruled that, yes, felon disenfranchisement is a form of punishment. Um, and one of the ways, or the way they get there pretty much is fascinating. <laughs> um, I mean, it is, like you said, it's not exactly simple. It's a little complicated, but the short version is that they relied on the 1870 Readmission Act, which was the law that Congress passed to allow the former Confederate states back into the Union. And that law said This is that the, the first drop of that law on the Pro Se Podcast, I'm certain. <laughs> I, I, I will take that. I will take that gold star. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, sorry to interrupt. Tell me That's what that law says. So that law basically set the, the parameters for the Confederate states being readmitted to the Union. And one of the things that law says is that a state could not be readmitted to the Union if that state disenfranchised any of its citizens with one exception. And the exception was they could disenfranchise citizens for committing a crime. So what the Fifth Circuit reasoned was that under that federal law, in order for Mississippi to be readmitted into the Union, you have to consider felon disenfranchisement a crime. Otherwise, if it's not a crime, Mississippi is actually in violation of the Readmission Act and isn't a state. So- wow. <laughs> I, okay, I love this. That's so much more interesting than I thought our reasoning would be here. Yeah, me too, actually. And, <laughs> and it's just like you, I think this is the first time I've come across the 1870 Readmission Act in my sure, reporting. <laughs> sure, I mean, we are typically dealing with much more modern laws than yes. this, but but yes. I love the history lesson here. That's super interesting. If this ruling stands, and we will get into some opponents yes. to what happened here, but if it does stand, how many people in Mississippi could be affected and, and regain their right to vote? And also maybe tell us a bit more about how this could ripple past just that one state. Right. Um, so um, according to the original complaint in this case, there are more than 47,000 Mississippians who have been disenfranchised under this Mississippi law between 1994 and 2017. And about 60% of those, or over 28,000 of them, have completed their sentences but still can't vote. So there's at least 28,000 Mississippi potential voters that could be affected by this. I mean, that, of course, doesn't include people who have been convicted and completed their sentences since 2017. So it's likely a larger pool than that. Um, but the numbers that the attorneys who filed the original complaint are going off of date to 2017. Um, and as far as rippling out, uh, that's a really good question. You know, as of right now, the ruling only applies to states that have permanent felon disenfranchisement in the Fifth Circuit. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a pretty right. circumscribed number. Um, you know, it doesn't apply to temporary disenfranchisement, and obviously, it doesn't apply outside of the Fifth Circuit, where it could ripple. Well, two two ways actually. One way it could ripple is, of course, that it is giving fuel, enthusiasm, drive to a lot of the movements across the country to do away with felon disenfranchisement. Multiple states are currently, um, you know, considering legislation that would do away with it. There's multiple activist groups working across the country to do away with felon disenfranchisement, you know, permanent and temporary. And this ruling gives them 
you know, a kind of a, a stronger light to stand on, I think. I think they it, maybe it, also didn't consider that old law as, a, as the line of logic to get yeah. to this ruling. I don't know if anybody considered that law as a line of logic to get to this ruling. But so, yeah, so, um, you know, activists that I've talked to who are working against felon disenfranchisement do think that this ruling will essentially help them make their case. And then beyond that, of course, you know, if this case makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court rules on this, then that is a ruling that will impact the entire country. Okay, so that's one version of this, that it, <laughs> it, it does potentially ripple to other states and right. maybe, like you said, make it to the high court, which I do want to talk about again in a bit. But there's another side to this coin. A lot of people have called out the Fifth Circuit and just disagreed with what they've done here. Can you t- speak to that? What have opponents said? Yes, absolutely. So the ruling wasn't unanimous. It was a 2-1 decision. And so the dissenting judge, along with Mississippi's attorney general um, and some other people as well, have have made several arguments against the Fifth Circuit's ruling, the the biggest of which, um, the most salient of which, is that it violates both the Constitution itself and previous precedent. Um, So basically, the argument is that the the Section 2 of the 14th Amendment specifically allows for states to disenfranchise felons. the, The section actually is about you know, it takes representatives away from states that disenfranchise their citizens unless, again, unless they disenfranchise their citizens because of a crime. So their argument is that the U.S. Constitution explicitly says that states can disenfranchise felons. And Section 1 of the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause is how the Eighth Amendment applies to the states. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court has said the Eighth Amendment, which is the federal Obviously, a federal amendment applies to the states through the 14th Amendment's due process clause. So their argument is that in order for the Fifth Circuit panel's ruling to stand, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment has to conflict with Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Um, So that's one of their big arguments, is that it doesn't make sense that those two things are in tension with each other. That is perfect nerd fodder for this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, It took me uh, it took me several reads to kind of figure that one out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The other argument is also that it, it, you know, the the Fifth Circuit ruling violates multiple precedents. You know, multiple federal appellate courts have ruled, including as recently as April, that felon disenfranchisement does not constitute punishment and does not violate the U.S. Constitution. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, not a majority, but a plurality of the U.S. Supreme Court said in a decision, I think from the 50s, <laughs> that felon disenfranchisement is not punishment. So that, again, in order for the Fifth Circuit ruling to stand, it, w- it would have to go against all of those other precedents. Um, and something, another interesting little twist to that is that this same Fifth Circuit actually upheld this same felon disenfranchisement law, law just a year ago. Um, oh, so wow. Their, their own precedent is one of the precedents that people have pointed to. Okay, Jack. So let me get this straight. We have a law from the 18, what was it? 1850s? 1870s. 1870s. We have precedents uh, that go against this and now this new Fifth Circuit one. We have, so that's a growing split, I, I guess you would say. Yes. We have a complicated potential reading of portions of the Constitution is there any chance the Supreme Court doesn't bite on this? This sounds perfect for them. What are your expectations moving forward? 
Yes. Well, people I've spoken to actually do anticipate that it will find its way to the Supreme Court. Um, the Miss- Mississippi has already um, petitioned the Fifth Circuit for on-bank review. The attorneys and experts I've spoken to have basically said that their expectation is that if the if an on-bank Fifth Circuit were to overturn this Fifth Circuit ruling, that the, the attorneys for the plaintiffs would most likely appeal to the Supreme Court. And that if an on-bank Fifth Circuit chooses to uphold the Fifth Circuit ruling, Mississippi's attorney general will almost definitely appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So then the question is just, you know, does the Supreme Court choose to take it up? And again, you know, experts I've spoken to have pointed to the uniqueness of the ruling along with this, what is essentially a crazy patchwork of laws that are completely inconsistent across the country as reasons why the Supreme Court, like you said, almost has to take this up. And it has been, uh, I think, quite a while, maybe almost 50 years since the justices actually addressed this issue head on. So it may be time for them to, to take it up as well. So I, I, my anticipation is that this could very well end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, Jack, my anticipation is that we will absolutely have you back on the show if that happens, because this one I'm going to put it in my one to watch bucket for, <laughs> for future action. And it's interesting, not just because of all the the sort of process things we've talked through here, but just the voting right itself is so important to people that that makes this one have extra weight. So thank you so much for coming on to explain it. You are you are very welcome. It was it's a blast as always. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I know you have one that involves somebody I've followed really closely. Yes, we are returning to the Tom Girardi beat. Uh, And something quite unusual happened in court the other day. The disbarred, disgraced uh, uh, attorney who we've talked about on the show numerous times. There was, in fact, a whole (laughs) uh, Law 360 podcast series about Tom Girardi. Check that out. He is... To keep it short, he is facing many fraud claims for allegedly stealing millions of dollars from former clients. But for the purposes of what we're talking about today, he is now at the center of a process to determine whether he possesses the mental capacity to stand trial. He has been diagnosed with mild dementia, and now there is the court is grappling with the question of whether he can understand and properly participate in a trial or in any of these proceedings that are going on against him. And uh, as government attorney Ali Moghadas was questioning the expert witness who testified that Girardi does in fact have dementia and cannot understand what's going on, this, uh, this government attorney took a sharp right turn. I'll just read directly from the quote, which starts out as pretty basic government examination of a witness, and then you'll see where we, where we go a little sideways. Again, he's questioning the expert witness here. Hypothetically, ma'am, If a defendant similarly situated as Mr. Girardi was able to successfully keep secret a multi-million dollar fraud, would that be significant to you? And, Your Honor, I just want the record to make clear that the defendant just said, fuck you to me. So that's what was going on in court that day. And this led to a very long back and forth between the expert and this government attorney about what Girardi's kind of vulgar utterance uh, which his own legal team did not dispute, by the way, 
what that indicated about his mental fitness. And I don't really want to dig into that because um, we are not really in a position yet to say what Girardi's mental fitness is. But I bring that up only because it's uh, very unusual and I'm eager to hear what you guys have to say about that. And then I also wanted to open to the group a discussion about any time in your lives you guys have gotten in trouble for cursing. It's happened oh. to all of us, whether as a child, an adult, uh, whatever. So thoughts? I love this notion of, I don't know, one day like a team of people will be deciding if I am mentally fit based on the profanity that I have <laughs> that I have uttered in their presence, which is obviously not what's going on here, but that's how I'm choosing to interpret it. It is a context too, though. Uh, it's, it's where you say these things, I would argue. Yeah, without weighing in on Girardi, I do think this is just, as you said, Alex, a, a springboard for some of our own perhaps more colorful stories. Um, I don't have a lot of gaffes of this nature as an adult, thankfully. I need to knock on some wood somewhere or something yeah, right. just to make sure. But I do have tales of being a colorful child that my mom likes to trot out sometimes to get a good laugh. And one of them. Please. Yeah, this is, I'm going to try to remember this because I don't actually remember it, but I've, I've just absorbed it as she's retold it my entire life. Apparently, my dad had a job interview that was in a separate state. So we had actually traveled there. He was doing interviews. And while he was off doing that, my mom and I, and I was maybe four years old at the time. Nice. I like where this is going already. <laughs> we were with the wife and children of, of the boss that my dad was off interviewing with. So we'd like spent a day, you know, being shown the town and that kind of stuff. And we get back to these lovely people's home. And this woman says to my mom, and I'm standing there, oh, please forgive me. I didn't have a chance to wash the dog. Just, I'm sorry. We've been really busy, whatever. The dog might smell a little bit. And I just <laughs> apparently look out and say, yeah, your dog smells like shit. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Way to go. So if you'd like to figure out a way a four-year-old child might be able to tank your interview, yeah, that's it. I, was, I think I that's it. Say, there's a lot at stake there. <laughs> I, uh, I don't even have like a specific story. I got in trouble for that stuff a lot, but this did remind me of, I suspect I'm, I don't think parents do this anymore. And I'm curious, I mean, no one has to share if they don't want to, but my mom was of the school of thought that whenever I said something that displeased her, whether a vulgarity or just talking back or whatever, she would wash my mouth out with soap. Did you oh, ever get she, that, Amber? She really did that? Like, oh, yeah, that literally happened. I mean, given the story I just told, maybe my mom should have, but <laughs> she didn't. So, Yes. Uh, also, as an adult, and I've tried to keep my stories about fatherhood and parenthood to a minimum because that's like the sign of a truly washed up podcaster. But, ju <laughs> but just the other day, we were, getting, we were getting a little guy loaded into the car and I folded up the uh, stroller to put it in the back, pinched my finger in it as I often do, let out uh, an expletive. And sure enough, my boy repeated it. And Ooh. that feels like the beginning of a new era of mm -hmm. carefully monitoring my language, which to this <gasps> point, I have not been doing. So it's that's such a, a that bummer when they get to that age. Felt like a such watershed a moment, really. Yeah. I mean, it's you either start reeling it in, Alex, or you have yeah. your little adorable four-year-old child one day saying, yeah, your dog smells like shit. Yeah, so those are your choices, really. That's all, that's all you got. <laughs> Haley, anything on your end? I was, a, I was a firstborn. I was terrified of swearing in front of my parents. So I really did not get in trouble of, for that uh, back in the day. But I do remember my little brother is nine years younger than me. And I remember we were 
on a family road trip and it was my dad, me and my brother driving in Delaware. And both my dad and I, I think I was 17 at the time. So my brother must have been too young to be uh, hearing us (laughs) use profanity. But my dad and I both at various times on this road trip accidentally dropped the F-bomb in front of him. And I remember just being like, this trip is fully off the rails if we're both dropping F-bombs in front of sweet Eric. You have a story like that. (laughs) Mine is about childhood. Alex's is about the perils of parenting. The good news for all of us is that none of these are in the context of someone in a robe with a gavel telling us it's a bad idea to have cursed. Not yet. So we're doing okay. We're doing okay. There's time. Uh, That that almost happened (laughs) when when I went to traffic court one time, but I was able to keep it tight. So uh, anyway, uh, that's the end of my swearing era, and I'm very sad about that. Um, well, but, you know. I really think we have to end the show before one of us makes a misstep on the air. That's our next worry. So let's get out of here before we do it. Sounds good. Thanks for bringing that one, Alex. Glad to. And thanks a lot, Haley. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Jack Carp, and our contributing reporter, John Hill. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Keller Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left a written review that really does help other people find our show. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, that's when you go to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.